You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Uh, We as a church have been working our way through the book of Colossians, and and we've hit the pause button in chapter 3, in verse 4 of chapter 3, because we want to take a few weeks to explore this little phrase that's in that verse. Uh, This is what Colossians chapter 3, verse 4 says. It says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So, apparently, if you are a Christian, then Christ is your life. And most of us hear that, and we give hearty agreement to that, or at least we want to. We're like, yes, Jesus is my life. He is the number one priority. He is the big dog in my life, right? I love Jesus. But that raises a question. What does it mean practically, though, to say that Christ is my life? Like, what does it look like in my everyday life? Is it more than just a feeling that I have? Is it more than just words I say about him? If I were to ask most of you, what's the center of your life? Almost all of you would say, Jesus, right? We would all get the gold star in Sunday school because we gave the right, Jesus is always the answer, Jesus. But what does that mean practically? Like, do I order my life in such a way that it, it both reflects but also cultivates my love for him. I, uh, when Will was preaching last week, I was really struck by the idea that you can tell what my life is about by how I live my life, like how I arrange my life, how I order my life. And so when Paul says, Christ is your life, he's making this lofty theological statement that has huge everyday implications. And so what we want to do is we want to reach up into the theological clouds And take that statement down to the nitty-gritty of everyday life and say, what does it mean in my everyday life? How do I practically live that out? And that's what we're going to explore for four weeks, last week and the next three weeks. Now, here's the big idea that we're suggesting. We said it last week. The practical means by which we cultivate our life with Christ is to organize our life around His church, right? And some of you don't know how you feel about that, and some of you have been noodling on it in your, in your gospel communities uh, this week. Last week, Will de- dealt with the question of why. Like, why is the church such a big deal that we would organize our life around it as Christians? And, and his answer was threefold. Uh, number one, he said, because, it's, it, because the church is God's idea. Like, this is the story that God is writing. It's the story of his people. Number two, because you can't separate Jesus from his church. The church is his body. He's the head. The church is his body. If you separate the two, you've decapitated your faith, right? The third reason we, that we organize our life around the church is because it's good for us. Like, when we organize our life and give ourselves to Christ and his church, it actually ends up nourishing us and bringing health to every other area of our life. That's not true if you organize your life around any other thing. If you organize your life around any other thing, it will disappoint you and it will end up consuming you, but not true with Christ and his church. So that's the why of why we do this. These next three weeks, we're going to answer the question of how. Like, how do we organize our life around the church? Does it mean that we spend every spare minute that we have in church activities? Like, don't be going to a movie if you can go to a Bible study or something, right? Or a mission project. Don't be doing that. Does it mean that? 
We want to say no. What it means, though, is that we have these anchor points, as Doug Wilson calls them, uh, in our life. An anchor point, as he explains them, are these regular times of direct uh, and intentional godwardness that enable and cultivate in our life unintentional godwardness in all the other parts of our lives. So we have these points where we directly focus on God so that during the rest of our week, we indirectly focus on God without even thinking about it. Without these anchor points, our life begins to drift, right? Uh, we, We begin to be tossed on the waves of everything else going on in our life, and we lose our bearings. We lose our North Star that Christ is our life. And so these anchor points help us live a Godward life. We need them, right? They're how we organize our life around the church. Now, the anchor point we're going to talk about today is gathered worship, which is where you are right now, right? Sunday worship is a weekly anchor point uh, of the church. But I think that we probably need it more desperately than we sometimes feel like we do, right? Sometimes I think we think it's a maybe, I'll possibly do it, but we don't see our desperate need for it. And so I want us to look, uh, I want us to leave Colossians uh, uh, for a little bit today um, and, and think about gathered worship by looking at another letter that Paul wrote to another church, the church at Corinth. And uh, it's the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is largely a rebuke. Like Paul is rebuking the Corinthians for their divisiveness among a host of other problems. He's calling them to greater unity. It's not like Colossians. Colossians is very encouraging. Corinthians, you heard Stephen read that. It sounds like a rebuke already. Um, but you're, when, we, when we get into the passage today, it's going to have a negative tone to it. I don't want you to think too much about that, though. Uh, For our purposes today, the reason I chose this text is because I think it says a lot about the gathered worship of the early church, and I think we can draw some principles uh, for how we think about gathered worship today, okay? So let's look at 1 Corinthians 11. If you have a Bible, turn there because I want you to see this. 1 Corinthians 11. And the first thing I want us to see and notice uh, today is the assumption that Paul makes as he writes to the Corinthians. It's a pretty obvious assumption, Um, but sometimes we miss the obvious things uh, in Scripture and we miss how important they are uh, because we think, well, I know that, and we skip over that, and we're looking for something deeper and more hidden. We're thinking, if I can find some obscure insight, then I'm doing serious Bible study. Uh, But most of the time, what God is saying is right out in the open, right? And that's the case in the assumption in this passage. Look at verse 17, 1 Corinthians 11. Notice the assumption Paul makes. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat. And then skip down to verse 33. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give direction when I come. Now, Paul does not sound happy with the Corinthians, does he? But what is the obvious assumption that Paul is making about this church? His, his assumption is that they come together. Five times in this passage, he uses the phrase, when you come together. Not if you come together, when you come together. 
It actually brackets this, this entire section. It's at the beginning and it's at the end, forming what in biblical studies is called an inclusio, meaning everything in the middle of those two brackets is going to have to do with this bracketing phrase, when you come together. Now, here's something I found interesting, though. If you look at verse 18, he says in verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, now the word church literally means assembly. So it's like Paul could literally be saying, when you assemble as an assembly. So the activity of the church, assembling, is connected to the identity of the church. It's the assembly. What does the assembly do? It assembles. It's part of our identity. The being together as a church is part of who we are. Now, again, this is so obvious in the text that I'm almost embarrassed to bring this up, right? But it's so important. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because sometimes I, th- I think we don't feel the weight of the importance that the regular rhythm of God's church throughout the centuries has been to gather, then scatter. Gather, then scatter. Gather, then scatter. Week after week. That's how the church has always done it. Because God wants it that way. Paul Bradshaw, who's a professor at Notre Dame, he writes this in his book called Early Christian Worship. This is really good. He says, Sunday was the day for the manifestation, the showing forth of the church. During the rest of the week, the church was dispersed and hidden as its individual members went about their life and their work in different places. But on Sunday, the church came together and revealed itself. Isn't that great? How did you know who the church was? Well, well, they came together. And the coming together was a visible representation of the fact that these people were bound together in Christ. In other words, in a theological sense, we're bound to all Christians everywhere for all time, all over the world, living and dead. We're bound to them. But that's hidden. That's invisible. The visible representation or sign of that is that I come together in a particular local church uh, each week. And that begins to show that Christ is my life and that I share that life with all of you. See how that works? Now, this coming together is a particular type of assembly. Like, it's not just about being together in the same room with a bunch of people you don't know who have some kind of shared interest with you. Sometimes I think that's how we treat going to church. I'm going to go in. I'm going to sit down next to people I don't know. I'm going to watch the show. Hopefully it'll be good. Hopefully I'll get something out of it. Then I'm going to get up and leave and go home. And that's how we treat church. I had a professor once who said that uh, in our gathered worship as American Christians, uh, we've exchanged community for concertism. Isn't that great? I don't think concertism is a word, but it communicates. We've exchanged community for concertism. Last weekend, I went to uh, uh, the Jason Isbell concert over at uh, Moody uh, Theater. Uh, thankfully, Baird Smith used his spare ticket to invite me instead of Will Walker to the concert. And so, uh, this was a sore subject at the office uh, this week. Uh, but Baird invited me because he knows that I love Jason Isbell. Uh, Southeastern, his his album uh, from a couple years ago is probably one of my top five albums. I will listen to that album uh, anytime, anywhere. I love that album. And so last Friday night, uh, I I came together with 2,700 other people who love Jason Isbell and his music. And we all 
faced the same direction toward the stage, and we all cheered, and we all sang the lyrics, and when he sang Cover Me Up, uh, we were all moved by it. It was awesome. But you know the only thing we had in common uh, that bound us all together was what was happening on stage. Nothing deeper bound us together, and when it was over, it was just, it was a great event, but it was over, we all left. Now, that's a concert. That's not church. At church, we don't come together because we have some sort of shared interest We come together out of identity. It's who we are. We're the assembly of God's people. And I'll take it a step further. We actually are to come together with a particular local church that we've bound ourselves to, people whom we know and people who know us and our story. I mean, when I was in Charlotte for two weeks, uh, I went to my parents. My parents lived in Charlotte, and I was staying with them. I went to my parents' church while I was there. It was great. Went to church. Met some people, sang some songs, heard a great sermon, took some notes, got a lot out of it, shook some hands, had some conversation. I came together with other Christians, but it wasn't the same as being here. You know why? Those aren't my people, right? Other than my mom and my dad, those aren't my people. I I didn't know any of them. I don't know their story. I don't know their struggle. They don't know my story. They don't know my struggle. It wasn't the same. When I gather together here, it's a matter of identity because my life is bound up with the people in this room. You see how that works? Now, Paul treats the idea that the church comes together weekly as an assumption. And the question is, do you? Do you just assume, yeah, I'll be there on Sunday at 4 o'clock because those are my people? Like, is it a non-negotiable part of your schedule because it's a part of your identity such that you you build your schedule around this anchor point in your life? Or is it a maybe? Is it kind of like, well, I might do that. Depends on what else comes up that weekend. Maybe there's something better. Maybe there's something more pressing. Paul assumes it for the church. It's what the church does. Now, that's what the church does. Why does the church come together? What's the purpose And he gives the answer, Paul does, in verse 20. Look at verse 20. He answers the why of why we come together by giving a negative statement that we're supposed to know that he's implying the opposite. Verse 20. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. In other words, you're supposed to be coming together for the Lord's Supper, but you're treating it like it's your own supper, right? And we're going to talk more about uh, the Corinthian sin in a a minute, but Paul's implication is that the reason that the church was to come together uh, was to gather around Jesus uh, and his table, right? They were to come together over Jesus. And the, you know, some of you know I'm a song guy. The lyric that's been stuck in my head all week is, come together right now over me, right? I can't, I can shake it. I know that John Lennon wrote the lyric. Jesus is actually the only one who can sing the lyric truly. Come together right now over me, because Jesus knows that if we do that, it changes everything. It actually makes huge changes in who we are. Now, why does the church gather weekly? We gather over Jesus and his table, according to this this text, right? And, And you know how the early church did that? You know how they gathered over Jesus? Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread 
and to the prayers. So those have been the basic elements of Christian worship throughout history, no matter what your denomination, what your tradition, no matter how you structure or form, form your, your, your weekly service, those are the basic elements, right? We, we pray, we hear the apostles' teaching or the word of God, we have fellowship with one another, we break the bread together. So traditionally, the church has organized worship around Jesus around the word and the sacraments, Right? And those are, in our worship, uh, the twin pillars of our worship service, God's Word and God's sacrament, the pulpit and the table. Those are the things that we build our service around. And here's the deal. You got to be present at the service to benefit from those things. Again, that's so obvious, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say it, <laughs> right? You got to be here, right? Let me talk about the Word for a minute. The, the Bible is the primary means by which God speaks to us as his people. It's not that God doesn't speak to us in other ways, through people, through circumstances. Sometimes he nudges us uh, in our conscience. Uh, but, the, but the normative way that God speaks to his people is through his word. God speaks to us and he tells us the promises of his gospel, that he loves us, that we belong to him, that our sins are forgiven, uh, that, that we're his, all because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, right? God uses his word to comfort us and exhort us and, 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 and rebuke us and correct us and, and, and turn our affections to Jesus, Right? His word is powerful. And this is why the word of God is a pillar in our gathered worship. It's the first thing you hear in the call to worship. It's the last thing that's read in the benediction. Uh, you hear the word of God in the absolution. Sometimes the word of God is in the confession of sin. Sometimes the profession of faith is the adapted word of God. Then the word of God is read publicly out loud up here, and then the Word of God is preached in this pulpit. The reason the Word of God is a pillar in our service is because it's our food. We can't live without it. It it breathes life into us. Now, let me address something here related to the preached Word, what happens in the pulpit every week. Sometimes I hear people say, well, if I miss church, I'll just catch the podcast. And I agree that that is a wonderful technology to have uh, as, as a backup when we miss church. Uh, you know, we're sick, we're out of town, you know, we're working in Providence Kids. It's a great thing to have as a backup. Uh, but I want to say that there's a problem with the idea that the podcast is an adequate substitute for worship. There's a couple of problems with that line of thinking. Uh, number one, that line of thinking reduces worship to a sermon. As if I, can just, if I can just get the content of what was said in the sermon, then it's like I was actually there. Problem with that is, worship, worship, there's much more to worship than the sermon, right? And there's actually much more to a sermon than just information. The second problem with this idea that a podcast could be an adequate substitute for worship is that things are actually different when you're in church hearing a sermon than when you're listening to a sermon, even the same sermon on podcasts like in your car on Mopac or something, right? There's something different. First of all, God is present differently in those two scenarios. He's present with you on Mopac, don't get me wrong, but he is present in a unique way in the gathered worship of his people because God mediates his presence through his people. It says in the scriptures that we together are the temple of God. And God, by His Spirit, in gathered worship, communicates His Word through a particular preacher to a particular congregation in a particular moment. In other words, there is a temporal, uh, there is a situational aspect to the preached Word of God that cannot be recaptured later. 
right? I, I saw this in my own life a couple weeks ago. I was in Charlotte for two weeks. I missed Providence two weeks. So each Monday after those Sundays that I miss, I listened to the podcast. The sermons were great. I loved it. But guess what? I felt like, I sensed that when I was listening to him that I was missing part of how God was speaking because I wasn't there in the moment. And that's true. But not only is God present in a different way with us, we're actually also present differently when we're in church than when we're listening to a podcast. Because in church, we're with God's people, right? We've prepared our hearts. We've confessed our sins. We've been assured of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. We've sung songs. We've prepared in every way to receive it. And then after we hear the sermon, we have a way to respond to what God has said in the sacrament of communion. We don't have that in the podcast, okay? Now, let me say something about the sacrament of communion. Two pillars of a worship service, the Word of God and then the table. In the Word, God speaks the promises of the gospel to us. In communion, in His sacrament, uh, he, he communicates, He demonstrates the promise of the gospel to us, right? It's like He makes the promise of the gospel visible to us. It's His way of saying, you know all the promises that you've heard throughout the service about the forgiveness and the life and the wholeness and the goodness that you have in Jesus? Well, that's for you. That's for all of you. So come and get it, right? Come to the table because all that you've heard from the Word is for you. Like, what are the words that you hear every week in communion? This is my body which is for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Look at verse 26. First Corinthians eleven twenty-six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, you announce the Lord's death until he comes. So when you and I participate in this meal, we are announcing the death of Jesus without even saying a word. It's like a silent gospel presentation. Just doing it says it. Isn't that amazing? And it's not only that we announce his death, we also announce his resurrection. Because if he's coming back, like verse 26 says he is, that means he's alive. It's awesome. It's a silent gospel presentation uh, that, that we make when we, when we gather together around the table. We're announcing that God loves us, that we belong to Him through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, I want you to hear this. Jesus is present with us in a special way in communion. He, yes, He's always present with you all the time, wherever you go, but in communion, He is present with us in a unique way. And I've heard someone say it like this. A father always loves his children, but there are times when he picks his children up and he gives them a hug so that they can feel his love, right? Communion's the hug. Communion is the hug, right? In the Word of God, we hear God loves us through Jesus. In communion, we feel God's love for us, right? But here's the deal. You got to be here to get the hug. (laughs) You can't get a virtual hug. Right, again, it's so obvious, I'm embarrassed to say it to you, right? But you got to be here to get the hug. The reason gathered worship is so important and it's such an anchor point in our life is because God meets us here in ways that he does not meet with us anywhere else in the rest of our week. What does the church do? It comes together. Why do we come together? To encounter Jesus through word and sacrament. And then finally, just and briefly, how are we to come together? How are we supposed to do it? And this is what Paul is getting after the uh, Corinthians about, uh, because they are coming together in the wrong way. 
And so look at what their sin is. Look at how they are coming together in the wrong way. First Corinthians, uh, look at verse 18. First Corinthians eleven eighteen. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions, he's, he's being sarcastic here in verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that you must, uh, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. For when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not commend you. All right, now what's going on here? We can't imagine people getting drunk at church. What is going on? Well, in the early church, uh, there were no church buildings like this. Right? And so the church would gather weekly in the homes of people, and a lot of times they gathered in the larger homes uh, of the wealthy people, uh, and, uh, and that's where they would, would get together. And it was the normal practice when they would gather to have a, a, a meal together. Uh, they called it an agape feast, a love feast, and they would, they would have this meal together, and then they would culminate that meal with the Lord's Supper, with communion. And so it was a, it was a time of fellowship and then a time of worship for the gathered church. The problem at Corinth is that divisions or factions were starting to form in these gatherings. And the divisions were between the rich and the poor. See, the rich had a lot of means to bring a lot of food and drink to the meal, and the poor had less means, so they weren't able to bring as much. Uh, And the rich had this erroneous thought that they were wealthy because God had blessed them, and so they were the genuine Christians, the ones whom God was really pleased with. And so you can imagine a scenario like this. There's this gathering, and in one room are the wealthy people just gorging themselves on all the stuff that they brought, and in another room are those who are poor, who have less, with really not much to eat. And then at the end of the evening, somebody says, hey, guess, hey, we're almost done here. Let's all get together and take communion, right, and celebrate our unity in the Lord. And it's like, and Paul's like, what? What are you talking about? Celebrate Jesus when you're, you're completely divided? Now, what is the sin? The sin is individualism. The sin is approaching worship as if it's just about me and my needs, just thinking about myself. And Paul says, hey, what? That, that attitude has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 27. These are some verses that have been highly misinterpreted over the years. Whoever, verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Eating the meal in an unworthy manner here means eating it in a a way that's individualistic. Just thinking about myself. Verse 28, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. When it says examine yourself here, it doesn't mean get all introspective and think about how unworthy you are and the deepest, darkest sins that you've ever done. That's not what it's talking about here. 
right? You've already confessed your sin, by the way, and you've also already received the forgiveness in Christ. That's not what it's talking about. When it says examine yourself here, uh, it means that uh, to not treat the, uh, to make sure you're not treating the Lord's Supper individualistically, only thinking about yourself. See, reconciled relationships are the overwhelming concern of how we're to come to the table. There should be no divisions, no factions as we come to the table. And then look at verse 29. This is the key. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So when we come together to worship and take communion, Paul says we ought to discern the body. Now, in the context of what he's saying here, uh, when he says body, he means the church. He doesn't mean the bread. He means the church. He means the community of God's people. See, we don't exist unto ourselves as individuals, and so we've got to recognize the body. We've got to discern the body. We've got to recognize that we're a part of Christ's body. Now, what are some ways that we might approach gathered worship individualistically in our day, in our setting? Well, we don't have, uh, I think, visible factions in our gathered worship because we uh, you know, we all get together in one room. Although some of you have your self-assigned seats that you're not giving up, right? I'm aware of that. Uh, I'm just, uh, I'm assuming that that's not because we have factions, uh, but because we're just creatures of habit and we sit in the same place. But from up here, you can actually, I know where you're sitting uh, each week. Uh, we don't have factions visibly, but do we have unreconciled relationships in our church? Like if you are at odds with a brother or a sister, and yet you come to the table that says that you are one with them, that's not discerning the body. That's individualism, right? Another way we treat worship individualistically is when we approach it as a consumer and not a contributor. So maybe, you have a, maybe you're consistently 15 minutes late to worship because you think, well, I really just want to hear the sermon and take communion because that's the part I get the most out of. That's not discerning the body. That's just thinking about yourself, and what you get out of it. Maybe you tend to think that when you miss church, it doesn't really affect anyone. It doesn't affect you all that much, and it certainly doesn't affect anyone else. That's not discerning the body. See, a proper view of community says that I am incomplete in Christ unless I'm with you or someone who is gifted like you. I'm not complete in Christ just because I have the Holy Spirit dwelling in me. I need the body, and the body needs me. I need the Spirit of God manifested in a variety of ways, and I need to be with people like that in their presence. I need to be with them. That's what it means to discern the body. See, a Christian says, I need gathered worship. But a Christian also says, gathered worship needs me there too. The reason that is is because gathered worship is a visible representation of our unity. We are joined to Jesus, but we're also joined to one another in Jesus. See, when we meet together, we're proclaiming that, but we're also experiencing that in very real ways. So if you're sitting here, you're probably thinking, well, it sounds like Todd just wants, is just trying to get us to go to church. Yes. <laughs> That's it. Go to church. That's the application. Go to church, but go to church for all the right reasons. Namely, that Christ is your life, and worship of Him weekly anchors you to Him in that fact that He is your life. All right? Let's pray.
Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.